This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Hello and welcome to episode 195 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today we welcome musician Jim Ward. You may know him from At The Drive-In, Sparta, or Sleeper Park. He has a new solo record. It's called Daggers and is out Friday, June 11th. Now, if you're listening in the future, I am sure it's on whatever streaming service or implant we all have inside us to enjoy our favorite tunes. So it's Daggers. It is Jim Ward. He was an absolute blast to talk to and someone I've been wanting on the podcast since I started this thing way back in 2011. We spoke about, a lot about his life, weaving in learning about music, touring, and a ton of stuff. Uh, he pulled no punches, uh, was hopeful in his words that really resonated deeply with me when I listened back. So if you're a fan of him or not, I really think you're going to dig this chat. Thank you all the Patreon supporters out there. You are my favorite people on the planet. If you want to support this DIY endeavor, go to patreon.com slash washed up emo. This is episode 195. We're almost to 200 of the washed up emo podcast with Jim Ward. hometown um so ed ivy uh which is the bass player singer in the rhythm pigs sort of was was doing shows and was kind of like all of our um godfather or like uncle or whatever the sort of like the older guy in the scene that was kind of like schooling all of us you know and he um i think probably anybody from my era from el paso will probably say that ed was like the guy that gave them their first show Wow. And that's definitely my case. Like he, he would be like, um, "All right, you're opening for so and so," and you'd be like, "Yeah," it'd be you know this sort of super momentous moment. Um, it's a really small scene. It was a really small scene. There was a, a place called Gdansk, which was in the Mesa Inn, which is a really shitty motel kind of drug den sort of thing. But they had a bar, nightclub, um, and there'd be shows and this was like maybe three blocks from the, my parents' house on the West side. So I was able to walk down, you know, when there'd be shows on like Friday or Saturday and, and I could go out starting like around 13, 14, be able to sort of go and see shows. Um, you know, and I remember specifically the Holy Rollers playing and, and being there so early that I got to see them sound check. And then the guitar player was like taking his guitar part on stage, fixing something after sound check. And I was just asking him like every annoying question that you could think of, like, how do you tour? Where do you get a van? How do you do this? Like, cause I was so interested, like I was in punk rock bands, but I didn't know how the, the world of touring worked at all. I was just learning. So I was, you know, I was probably 13 or 14 at the time and he was so kind and he was so patient and, I'm amazed now to look back and think that 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 guy, you know, took the time to talk to this little kid and just explain. And I think that that's one of those things I've sort of always carried with me um, in my career is that I was that kid. And I always think about that. Um, if somebody wants to talk or wants to ask questions or, you know, as long as they're being respectful, I, I sort of am a, 
pretty open book with with uh, with folks. And and they're so also uh, they're also making that effort to come out to the show. They've 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 gone past the radio, so to speak, and they've found this. They need to be encouraged. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I so our our scene and to further answer your question, our scene was really small, so everybody kind of played with everybody, which is why you ended up having um, all these sort of different genre people that grew up kind of listening to different things, joining bands together and sort of making this, uh, you know, unique El Paso thing happened sort of every band sounded different because everybody was into different stuff but we all played shows together so there wasn't like a like a hardcore scene or like a ska scene or whatever everybody played shows together and everybody would go see shows together because there wasn't a whole lot to do if you know if you weren't going to Juarez to party you would kind of be here going to shows and or both right I I grew up a lot of nights (laughs) yeah no I grew up in a small town and it was either like go to a show uh, drink or vandalize those were the three things Yeah, or or all all three at or once. all three throughout the night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about finding punk? What or you know the underground? What was that like for you in that town? So I start. I mean, I think with a lot of people, uh, the gateway for me was skateboarding. I started uh, skating with, and I actually lived in Albuquerque for a couple of years while my mom went to school, and I went to this middle school for sixth and seventh grade before we moved back to El Paso, and. It was it was like the first time I ever saw like Liberty Spikes and Mohawks and like wow. real punk rockers, you know, like and I was, you know, uh, small and young for my grade. So I'm a year younger than most people in my grade. And I was a little guy. So I was like this tiny square kid, like super square kid going to middle school and just being like, what the fuck is it? Like, I'm so into this. And then about the same time my sister got into like she's two years older Um the sister I'm talking about, she got into like the Sunday night college radio in Albuquerque. They had mm-hmm. a great college radio. And it was just sort of this this evolution of like skateboarding and, you know, Susie and the Banshees coming out of my sister's room. And I was still listening to like uh, Benny Goodman was my favorite, favorite, <laughs> favorite guy. So I'd listen to like big band jazz. <laughs> I was like a super nerd. Um, but started skateboarding. And then kind of from, from that point on, somebody gave me uh, subhuman LP, the cradle to the grave. And that was it. Like, I remember listening to that record and just being like, this is, this is me. Like I, I totally connected to the music for the first time. Like I hadn't been into a lot of stuff that she was listening to, you know, it was more like the dark wave stuff. Right. Which I could grow to understand later, but this was just like, I mean, from the cradle to the grave, just the song alone, like is, it's sort of like when you love, Billy Joel scenes from Italian restaurant and then you hear from the cradle to the grave you realize that you can make these epic long stories but also play punk rock Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and I was a huge Billy Joel fan too of course it's like my favorite writer so for those things kind of coming together hearing that and again that back then you didn't have we didn't have wiki we didn't have spotify like what were some (laughs) of those like oh my god i have to have more i just remember only having a certain number of seven inches and just repeating it well i guess i'll listen to hate breed again or i'll guess i'll listen to you know these hardcore records or this punk thing what were was there a record store were there were you trading stuff with friends how did you start to you know was it was it your sister kind of yeah, it was definitely, definitely my sister. Like she went to when we came back to town, back to El Paso. Um, I was in eighth grade and she was a sophomore in high school. And she went to band camp. She was she played clarinet in the high school band. She went to band camp at Texas Tech, which is in Lubbock, and they used to have this great store called University Records. And she came back with uh, Jawbox uh, Gripe or Grip. I never. I don't know if anyone actually knows the answer to this. And I always mean to ask Jay, but I just haven't. Um, <laughs> Griper Grip, and then uh, Jawbreaker Run Fun. She brought those two cassettes back simultaneously. Wow. Um, got Pixies Doolittle, sort of started listening to like Bedtime for Democracy. These were kind of my, all of my uh, foundational music, like Jawbox, Jawbreaker, Dead Kennedys, um, Minor Threat, Subhumans, Dag Nasty. And I really, really evolved way more quickly to the sort of the East Coast discord scene i think because it fit my mentality of like you know pma like 
straight ed- I was straight edge as a kid. Like I was really scared by sort of alcohol and drugs and that kind of like craziness that I would see around in my friends. I wasn't into that at all. It never motivated me or, or interested me. Um, so I, I kind of leaned heavily, and obviously you can tell from my <laughs> my career, I leaned heavily towards the Discord stuff as opposed to like um, too much of you know the West Coast kind of like I don't I don't think I even own a Black Flag record. Right, Maybe I own one. I don't own a Ramones record. Like that's just I've I've sort of like my entry point was kind of um sort of dictated a lot and i was just so captivated by kind of the diy discord uh ethos and and still to this day follow a lot of that they they just announced the 40th anniversary yeah i saw that i was like all over that i was like oh shit i must have like filled up my gmail sending that to people (laughs) yeah no i I saw it online (laughs) on instagram and i was like yep Actually, I think I saw it on your thing. Oh, there we go. There yeah. we go. Um, but like, I think, you know, find, like I found Straight Edge and obviously hearing those things and seeing like there's places outside of this town or city doing things. And again, for you to find out about Discord in those in those years and having your sister bring back that epic hall back from University yeah. Records, um, were you playing music yet? Where did you have... A, a guitar, piano, anything yet? Or was yeah, it still I, just I, listening? No, I just started playing bass in seventh grade. It, in Albuquerque, you have to take a mandatory music class in seventh grade for nine weeks. And I was absent the day everybody got to pick their instrument. So when I got back, the only thing left was the, the electric bass because everybody was tiny. So it was really <laughs> hard to play. Um, <laughs> So I ended up with that. And then there's a bunch of musicians in my family. Like my sister plays in band. My dad plays guitar. So there's always like an acoustic guitar in the house. A bunch of my mom's brothers play, uh, would play like in these sort of hippie jam band stuff. Um, So like music was around, but I hadn't picked it up until seventh grade. And, you know, sort of learned like the one, four, five, Mm -hmm. like walking scale thing. Um, But then started, you know, playing punk rock riffs on the bass and and got hooked and my dad bought me a like a 99 dollar uh pawn shop bass when we moved back to el paso and i thought it was like you know it was everything it had like the craziest action so i got very good at playing i would and i was tiny like you know in high school when i started high school they called me keebler i was really small um before i hit my growth spurt so i was like this little dude just playing as fast as i could and and um First thing I really learned was uh, like a Dead Kennedys record and and Pixies Do Little. Those are the two records I would just play bass to all day in my room. It was like a weird summer. I got mono, so I was home mm-hmm. a lot during that summer. Um, and kind of simultaneously, my my best friend started playing punk rock as well. He's now in a band called War on Women. Oh, so we totally. Sort of were like, yeah, so Brooks and I came up together and, and we both sort of discovered all of these things at the same time. So I had... He played guitar, so we would we would we had bands. Those were sort of my first bands, terrible bands. But that's where. Um, and then when I was sixteen, I met a guy at Sound Warehouse. Do you remember Sound Warehouse? No, tell tell me about that. So it's like a like a whatever regional chain of records, movies. Ah. Uh. You know, like a FYE or yep. a, strawberries or whatever those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're kind of different in every market, but there was one here and I went and bought, I think I was buying a Fugazi cassette and the guy that worked there, we just started talking and, you know, we both love Firehose and he was super into Mike Watt and he was into Jack Kerouac and I was like 16, I think, and he was in college. Um, and he was just said like, you know, we, we need a, a singer guitar player for our band. And I was like, oh yeah, I do that for sure. Really? Uh, I'd never, never done it. Never played guitar really. So I borrowed my cousin, Jeremy had a, he had a Les Paul. So I went to practice with a Les Paul. <laughs> so they thought I was like pretty legit, you know? <laughs> it's totally and true. Just, Cause you're not showing just, up with yeah. a Kramer. You're not showing no, up with a yeah. crate or a, 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 any of the, like a Hamer. You're not showing up with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, I walked in and they're like, Oh, this guy actually knows, you know, has a good, whatever. And all I did was write sort of change all the songs that I'd been writing on bass to guitar and just add a fifth to it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my style of playing guitar comes from sort of lying my way into it and not 
really learning, I guess properly, or I didn't really learn songs on guitar. And I still don't. I can't play very many, like I can't really play other people's songs um, for whatever reason. But yeah, that was how I went from, you know, kind of, and that band was more sort of like Minute Minish, Firehosey kind of college rock. And I sang and played and, and learned how to be sort of a front man for like a year and a half. Wow. Um, and he didn't want to tour because he had a girlfriend who was going to college and had an apartment and all the stuff that makes you not want to go tour because it's really hard. And, right. Um, so I was like, well, fuck that. I'm just going to start a new band. And, and I called Cedric and that's why we started at the drive-in. Wow. So I was 17. That's crazy. Just thinking like 17 and it, you were like, I want to do this. This is what That's I got. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah. I didn't go to college because I wanted to tour. Wow. And, and I think, you know, like hindsight, my, I've always told the story that my dad said, like, if you're not going to be in a band, be in the best fucking band you can be in. And, um, they were really supportive. And then it wasn't until like a couple of years ago that he was like, oh yeah, I totally supported you and pushed you to do it. Cause I thought you would go and do it and hate it and then move on. But I just wanted you to get it out of your system basically. <laughs> And he's like, totally backfired on me. Totally backfired. <laughs> yeah. Because I was, I mean, the first time we we played, we did like three, because the first sort of uh, lineup of At The Drive, and two of the guys, Jared and Kenny, were in high school still. They were seniors in high school. So we could only, we toured that winter break. So I was out of high school. Cedric was out of high school. Our drummer, Bernie, was out of school. Um, but Jared and Kenny were in school. So we had to take his mom's minivan on that winter we played like three shows, I think. We played like Lubbock, Austin, and San Antonio. Maybe four. Maybe we played Corpus Christi or somewhere in the Bay. I can't remember now. Um, but yeah, like that, 100%, I was hooked. Like just totally hooked. And then that next summer, we did sort of a almost U.S. tour, like 40-something days, sort of up the West Coast and to Chicago and then back down. But What record was that yeah. for? Uh, it was for the first two seven inches. So for El Paso and Alfaro Vive Carajo was a second seven inch. Right. That's ninety four, ninety five. I guess talk about mm -hmm. that tour. Though that those dates. Talk about um, who you were meeting. And again, I love this time period. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like these things would happen. And we'll we'll talk about later, like when certain things, when uh, uh, bands would come through certain places, and you would hear it talked about before and after. Um, yeah. He mentioned so this is all 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 pre internet pre right, or, you know, like really yeah. internet pre cell phone. We're still using dialers at some point. I don't think we were big enough to have a dialer yet, but um, you know, calling cards and and getting money from your parents at Western Union and. Um, looking up things in maps and calling from pay phones and like all the, I, it's very nostalgic to me. And it's, it's, it's like a, it's kind of an incredible coming of age story. Right. Because I didn't, I didn't do a lot around life before this happened. And I kind of went just 100% fully into it and used some, some money that had been set aside for me to go to school. Um, I used it to buy a 1981 Econo line instead <laughs> and put out seven inches and that's what i did and all this is watching you know like another state of mind or or mm -hmm. probably just another state of mind really that was getting passed around town and and sort of being like oh i could i could i could buy a van you know it's like it's like a thousand dollars like i have a thousand dollars for college i'll just use that <laughs> instead of going to college and putting out seven inches and learning from other guys around town that like how to put out a seven inch and they would give you the number for United pressing. And then you go to the local studio and record live. So our first two seven inches were recorded live to two track. Cause that's all we could afford really. Wow. Um, and that's all that was needed. I mean, there, it would have been a waste to do any more than that. That's what, that's what we were at the time. But I think that, you know, looking back on that stuff, we met, we met some people or had met, you know, sort of met people coming through El Paso, like, um, I want to say it was, so I did a show for Paper Tulips, which is a band from Long Beach mm -hmm. that, w that was involved with Flipside. And so Toast from Paper Tulips set us up with a show in Long Beach. And then we played Bob's Frolic number three in Hollywood. None of us were old enough to, to, uh, to get in. So we had to wait in the parking lot until we played. And there was like, 
there was only a few people there, but one was a drummer from Mud Honey. One was this guy Blaze that ended up being our manager uh, after that night, basically like put out a record on Flipside. That's how all that stuff started. Like how we got to put out a record on Flipside is I did a show for Paper Tulips in El Paso. Wow. It's like, it's as, as easy as it gets. And that was just, that's what happened at the time. Like you would go and we just played at one in the morning and we played our asses off and the dude from... Um, and I think I have this right. I think it was a drummer from Mud Honey. They had played up the street and he was just hanging out with his friends at the bar and bought like all of our merch, like for $50 or whatever. Bought like $50 worth of merch. It was like the best merch night we had. Wow. And it just seems so crazy. And, and again, that's one of those things that I hope I remember that was the right person. But if not, that story has always stuck with me and made me do that with other bands. Like I buy merch from bands, young bands all the time. Like we we do our best to sort of support like we still have bands stay at our house occasionally. At you know, my wife and I will go see a show and be like, "Oh, they totally need a place to stay," and and they'll come and stay. I love. And I that. won't tell them. I won't tell them anything about my life before they st- <laughs> they stay at my house <laughs> until they walk into the living room and the gold yeah. records are lined across the. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've actually only had gotten one gold record, and I I didn't know what to do with it, so I threw it away because I couldn't figure out. It's what pretty do you weird. Do with a gold record. I know. I don't want it. It's, I didn't ask for it. It's I didn't weird. want it. Yeah. And then I was like, I can't give it to anybody because they'll put it up, and that's weird. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. So I just threw it away. I gave one I got to my college. I was like, here you go. Put this oh, up cool. at the radio station or something. Like, have yeah. fun with it. <laughs> you guys will yeah, keep I just, it. I, I've never been a fan of of any of that stuff. It's never been yeah important. Well, I don't have anything in my house that you would know what I have done for a living. I don't so think. you haven't saved anything? I have boxes of stuff, but I just, you know, I have like memories, memory boxes. Like I have like uh, probably quite a few of the like t-shirt designs and I have a copy of every record I've made and stuff like that for sure, but not, I just don't uh, put stuff up. Right. That makes sense. I, yeah, I have no interest in looking at it's sort of like, um, I don't I don't read reviews or interviews or whatever I've done. It doesn't. I have no interest in it. Right. What about like photos? Did you did you do you have that stuff from back then? Yeah. Yeah, I have like a box of photos and and journals and stuff, which is kind of fun to go back and and read those things. I wish I had the journal from the the nineteen ninety five tour because a lot of stuff weird stuff happened. I almost died. I got what? stuck in a. Yeah, I got stuck. We all went swimming in Grand Rapids the next day. Like we played the show and then the next day we we played we played this is what's so great about this time period. We played a show with a, a riot girl band from the Northwest. I wanna say they're called either Diamonds and Nicole. I think they're called Diamonds and Nicole. And I wanna say Earth Crisis. Sounds about right. Was, that 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 sounds it, about ninety four. <laughs> Yeah, and it was just a huge fight. Like, there was just, like, arguing and people, like, protesting in the pit. And, you know, people were, like, outside crying. And it was kind of all lost on me because I didn't know. I wasn't sort of hip to all of the the dynamics of Riot Girl or Earth Crisis or anything. So, (laughs) for us, it was just a show. I think it was the night before. Either way, yeah, then then we went swimming. um, And Jarrett, who's the other guitar player, He's a really strong swimmer. He's actually from uh, South Carolina and, and grew up swimming in lakes and stuff. And I'm not a strong swimmer, but he was like, just jump in here and, it, and the current will push you out. It's like a low waterfall. Wow. And I, and I jumped in and I missed the current going out and caught the undertow. Not good. Um, so I was like struggling like pretty hard. And he's like, don't worry, I'll swim over and get you. And I'll, I'll never forget the look on his face when he realized he couldn't come get me. <gasps> and it was, it was such a fucked thing to feel at the, at the moment i was just like my heart just sank like oh man like this is it that dude that dude is so upset that he can't come help me it's like it's the worst look to see on somebody's face um and then i yeah i went i went under and i just got sort of stuck pinned at the bottom and uh and this guy's arm i saw this arm go by me and i recognized the tattoos from the guy that we had been hanging out with all you know all this happens really fast so right but he he jumped in and saved me basically and like swam me out and it was a crazy thing like i couldn't move um a muscle like i don't know if anyone has ever fought in a in, against water but within a few minutes you're physically depleted 
And so they sort of pushed me up on a rock and went back to swimming and I just laid on a rock and, you know, being 18, just turned 18 and thinking you're going to die. Like, I think I sort of had these romantic ideas of what would happen in that moment. Um, but all you want to do is breathe. That's all I can remember is like, I just want to fucking breathe. Wow. <laughs> no, no, like <laughs> nothing dramatic or poetic. Just right. like breathe. Yeah. So, Jim, you're good? All right, we're going to leave you on the rock. We're going to go back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's, again, that was just like, and then you get in the van and you drive overnight to the next city and play to nobody and get $3 and eat Taco Bell every day. And, um, you know, I remember we, we were in San Francisco like around July 4th, and I had never been to these cities. Um, so I was like, the other guys had. I, I hadn't for sure. And... um there's like fireworks going on. It was just crazy. Like it, I had never seen or experienced anything so um, like uh, filled with a life. I don't know how to explain it, but it just everywhere you looked was like experiences were happening. And my, my young brain couldn't even understand like, and we stayed with Jesse from Nuisance in Oakland at their house, like at a punk house and just sort of met all that crew. Um, Every city we'd go to, like uh, sort of all our Northwest shows fell apart. So we ended up staying there for like a, quite a few days. Um, and they hooked us up with a show. Uh, what were they called? Um, I don't know. I can't remember now. But ended up meeting a bunch of people that would sort of be buddies over the years. And it was a one time I could have seen Jawbreaker too. And we decided to play a show instead of go to see them. And I think that says a lot about that band. That's what we would do. Right. Wow. What were... It was always about, always about playing. Always. Well, you mentioned that. I was going to say, what, do you remember any of the other, like, bands that you were playing with, and did it feel like you said, a Riot girl band with a hardcore band? Or, you know, did it... Yeah, I think that's... Like, we played with Galaxian, which was a band from San Antonio that we had never known, Mm -hmm. but we played with them in uh, uh, Chico. I think that was called Juanita's. There was a bar that had shows in Chico. And those are sort of the, like, we became friends with them for, in fact, the drummer from, from Galaxian is a drummer that played on the, on the acrobatic tenement. Like, he came in and joined ah. the band for a while. But that's sort of how we, because the guy who was playing drums for us uh, at the time, definitely within a week was like, I hate this. Like, I do not want to do this. <laughs> wow. Which is fair, you know? I mean, we were all young and he's like, I do not want to sleep in a van and be hungry and, like, not, not hang out with my friends and. Whatever, but I think there was um, there's a few people we met on that tour, but I don't think any of them really stuck past. Galaxian was like the one band that that we stayed in touch with and you know hung out with for a couple of years. Right. What what connected with you guys when you started writing, or at least just not even writing, playing? What were some of those things, like you said earlier, you know, connecting with the guy from the record store? What stuff connected you with Cedric and those other guys when, when you started playing together? Well, early on, it was it was just me and Cedric, like, and we would go to the park sort of in between both of our parents' houses. We would meet up and we would play, like, one, I had an acoustic and, like, a hollow body kind of Sears guitar from the 60s, maybe. But it was loud enough that you could kind of play together, sort of. And more than anything, it was just mashing up his riffs with my riffs, and then he would do what he does on top of it, and I would sort of scream every now and then. And for whatever reason, it worked well early on, and and having Kitty and Jarrett, they're both phenomenal players and went on to do lots of other stuff musically in other cities. Um, But I think the sort of somewhere between... uh, you know, like we loved Nation of Ulysses. We loved mm-hmm. sort of that spa- spastic energy. Um, loved Fugazi. Loved Cedric was into a lot of other stuff. He played in like a like a kind of dubby reggae band as well at the time. So there was just all these like other elements coming in. I was sort of more like college uh, college rock. I had mm-hmm. been into you know just sort of like I love the Lemonheads and stuff like that. It wasn't, I wasn't strictly like a punk. I love you too. I love the clash. Like all of those bands were important to me. And I think they've just sort of all meshed into what we were doing. Well, kind of went from there, but I think really, you know, you can tell 
I'm not on every At The Driving record, and you can kind of tell what records I think I'm not on because I'm I'm pretty... Like, when I, I write a lot, um, and it, it gets meshed in with it or whatever, and um, with him especially early on, it was so easy for some reason to just be like, I have this riff, and I'd be like, oh, I have this riff. Like, we'll just put them together. But it's like, it seems so simple to look back, but it was just wasn't a lot of, like... Uh, worries just kind of do it well i mean you mentioned nation of ulysses and and fugazi and you know what about what was what was being tagged around that time um was it like oh there's this hardcore scene going on here oh that's cool um had you started to sort of sense that there were these regions of things happening and like the san diego scene or um, obviously DC that you talked about earlier, did you, as you were yeah. touring and did you start to kind of sense like, okay, there's some other people kind of doing similar things? I think by, by sort of 96, 97, when, when I had left the band for a bit and came back, um, in 97, we played, I came back in, in like mid 97. And from sort of that point on, we toured a lot, like a lot, a lot. And, that's when I think you started seeing these pockets of bands and, you know, we got to be buddies with like Jimmy Eat World and, you know, they would introduce us to Paul Drake. Paul Drake was like tour managing everybody, well, merch, selling yep. merch for everybody. Um, and then he was like connecting tons of things for us. And we, you know, went out with Blue Tip and just once you sort of made those connections and would start playing shows together and find the people that you sort of aligned with. And when we kind of, we toured a lot with the Murder City Devils because mm -hmm. we were just really good friends and we could spend a lot of time together. And that's, we had a lot of respect for each other and we didn't sound the same. Like we had no interest. I mean, I don't know if anyone, if we sounded much like anybody, but we didn't come from a scene where there was like, you know, like around that time you would say like, oh, they're a fat Rex band. And you know what they sound like. Totally. Because everybody, yeah. Or you would say they're a, you know, whatever it is. But we, we never got sort of stuck with any of that because there was just not anything like what we were doing exactly. But when we met the devils, it was like, oh, you guys are are also a little bonkers. Like this is perfect. We all fit. We we get along really well and we have the same appetite for music and life and, and other things. Well so that we, that's what I loved about that time period too is because I got sort of I straight edge. I was into Earth Crisis, but then it got old. And I was like, what yeah. else is there? What's different? And like you said, seeing those two bands together, seeing Murder City or you guys, or actually the first time I saw you was with Jimmy Eat World on that tour with Lazy Kane um, mm -hmm. and ended up being friends with Lazy Kane later. And, um, and just seeing that show and being like, okay, there's these three different things happening, but we're all together. And it yeah. felt, it felt like there was this shift from, uh, from hardcore to post, but to also this experimentation and uh, that same thing of like, you had to be there. You had to be at the show to kind of experience what was going on. Yeah. You had to do your work. Yeah. Like it's, you know, I think that to me is the, the part that I really miss from that time period and community and lack of um, social networking and everything. It's just, you would go and listen to an entire band and buy their record before you decided if you were like a lifer. You know, it wouldn't just be like, you wouldn't just hit like on the, on the fucking screen. You know what I mean? You would buy the seven inch and you would go home and listen to it 30 times and then you would, your friends would come over and listen to it then you'd debate and argue and then go get some beer, come back, debate and argue. You know, all of this happening like at the punk house and it was such a, a good community for me to grow up in um, because I learned so much from everybody that was like coming through and, and you had to, there was so much work involved. Like you have to listen to the whole record. You have to read the lyrics. You have to see where they're from. You have to see what label they're on. What else is on that label? Like, you know, and then you go through all that and then, and then you get to, you, in, you know, like you're obsessed with unwound and then you're in Olympia and you're at one of their houses and your right. mind is blown and you're like 19 years you know what i mean like all that st all that stuff added up to being something that was so important in the moment and and i don't i mean i guess you know like everybody it comes with age like i don't have those moments as much anymore but it was so exciting 
It was so exciting to be like, oh, we're at a, we're going to a party at that guy's house. Like, oh my god, I, you know, like I have everything he's ever done, and I love it. Like, it's I, those. I loved that stuff. It's you didn't have you didn't have your whole day planned, um, and you let it kind of ride. And I think that, like you said, you had friends or bands come stay with you, and then something happens years later. I know that that still happens, but it is. You did have to sit through Brothers Keeper to get to it. You did have to sit through that, you know, the festival, and there was those things, or that person, that girlfriend that was really shitty to you that day. Whatever those things are, it was this hook that, I remember being at shows being like, well, if I don't go to the merch table right now, all this shit's gonna be gone. So I gotta go now. Yeah. Or like those yeah. types of like in the moment decisions. They only have one copy at the distro. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Or I better go through every single crate outside because last time I missed, you know. So then you're like, damn it, I have to go through every crate at every show, every city we go to. <laughs> and then you don't have any money. But you know, also thinking about that, like we, so I've been with my wife and I've been together since 1997. And we had a one-bedroom apartment. And when we started the tour with Jimmy, they stayed at our apartment. <laughs> like, all four dudes and Paul Drake stayed at our little tiny apartment and slept in the front room. And I'm still really good friends with Jim Atkins to this day. Like, we text a lot. We talk a lot. And I think because of those experiences, like, it, it wasn't that we met in a dressing room and said hello and said, oh, I like your band. Oh, I like your band. You know, like, it was... You're like, come to our house. Like, we'll make breakfast. Tomorrow's we'll drive to Dallas. And all of those experiences added up to to some real solid foundations for me. And you end up being surrounded by the people that you gravitate towards. So my friends that I still call a lot are really similar to me to this day, like in their their ethos, you know? Yeah. And I think that was the that was the last time because as soon as it hit 2000, 2001, things started to feel faster. Obviously the word will bring up in a second. Like it just, I felt like that was, it's so underdocumented and your, that tour, that, that time period had that feeling of people came maybe for Jimmy and then they saw you yeah. guys. I mean that it was in Winston Salem at five thirty three uprising. Uh, it was, ab- I mean that the place you would remember it because it looks like yep. someone bombed it and it was run by this kid, this band, he was in a band called code seven and swank. And it was like, that was talked about for, it's still talked about that that yep. happened. And I think those types of things, it, it, sure. There might've been a victory message board, but it, that was an inside kid. You had to be there. Um, and so that part of you feeling that and still feeling connected it's different than you and I texting. It's just, and and I think I feel that that's not talked about enough. And I think there's these, especially for music, it had to, it's not walking uphill both ways, but maybe it is (laughs) like the whole thing. No, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. So what about the word emo? Um, When did you hear it? (laughs) When did you first hear Um, it? It was like a joke word to us. Like I, it was a, um, we, we were from, I, I, well, I shouldn't say we, I can't speak for everybody. I was from the school of like, uh, I would just use the Ian response to that, you know, like what music, I think it was Ian, right? What music isn't emotional? Like why would you? Totally. And, and they had to carry the brunt of that, but we, we got lumped in at some point. Um, and I feel like there was like some, probably said some shitty stuff about it in interviews at some point. Like, because in 2000, we were getting really, really big and people wanted to put that. I mean, it's what people do. There's, there's no reason to complain about it. It just is right. Like people want to say, you're, you're going to be the next big thing or you're the next Nirvana or you're the, like the new, like the rise of emo or whatever it is. It was, we shied away from that a hundred percent and never used it as a brand or a, uh, a calling card. And it was like a joke to us, honestly. Right. Like we ma- we would make fun of it. Even though you guys knew about still life, knew about nation Ulysses, it was still because that, that word at that time was associated yeah, with we, something else. We, that word was only associated with outsiders to me. Right. Like there was no, there was nobody doing what we were doing that was using that word. So for us, or for me specifically, like I, I would mock it. Because it'd be like, oh, you, 
you so don't know what you're talking about that you're trying to put a label on us that we don't use. Like you can't, you, I mean, you can do that. Obviously people did do it, but it just wasn't, I don't know. I mean, I, I wanted to, by that point, I just wanted to be in the clash. So I didn't want anything to do with, right. You know, as things got bigger, I got more, uh, I got grumpier. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the interesting part about like certain things. Like you said, if I was interviewing then about it, even if you knew, oh, Tom like knows all these bands and and friends with all like, but you'd still have that same. It, it's almost like it, it it took time for a lot of people um, that were thrown into that word, and it the the repercussions still exist. Um, I didn't, I didn't even know that. I forget who did it. Like who first said that about your, about at, at, at the drive-in in that word. I was like, what are you talking about? They're a hardcore band. They're like a, what are you talking yeah, see, about? I, I, I wouldn't have considered us a hardcore band either. It's a weird, really, no, not at all. Not at all. Was it because would, of the I, bands that you were touring with? Do you think that's why myself and others maybe put that in that word or i think it's just it's just perception i mean if you listen to a record and say it's hardcore and i listen to a record and say it's post-punk or what like right what does it matter it doesn't matter it's just a way of communicating so if you're communicating to somebody who understands your definition of hardcore then of course that makes sense like i just have a different definition of that stuff Mm -hmm. because of where i come from and it wasn't homogenized and it wasn't there was no uh global brand of hardcore right so all of us had our own our own definition of it and i always just considered us a punk band like just a punk rock band and that was i was happy with that and then when we signed a grand royal i dropped the punk part and just said we're a rock band and right leave me alone leave me alone after that because i know what's coming you know (laughs) i know the argument i've had it i wouldn't listen to i wouldn't listen to jawbox when they signed major you know right right I i wouldn't listen to jawbreaker when they signed major i actually somebody played me uh, what is it, Dear You? That's a major label one? Yep. Um, somebody played me Dear You, and I, I remember actually saying, I'm, and the only reason I admit this is because I think it's important to s- say where you came from and that you've grown, but I remember somebody handing me that cassette, and I listened to it, and I took it out and said, I don't want to listen to this Nirvana bullshit, and I gave it back to them. <laughs> because by that point, you know what I mean? By that point, Nirvana was too big and too uncool. to li- And this was a small, like, I didn't go see Guns N' Roses on that tour with um, Faith No More and Metallica because it was I didn't think it was cool to go. And I hate myself for that. Like, why didn't I go have that experience? Because those are fucking phenomenal bands. (laughs) And, like, I love Dear You now. But at the time, it's just that, like, I'm, you know, fuck that. Fuck that major label shit. Right. So, like, when when we signed and we were getting bigger and people would come up and start with me, I'd be like, I know, I've already, like... I'm with you. Like we could have this argument, but you're not going to say anything that I don't already understand and have already argued and come to a new understanding of how life works because I'm not 19 anymore. Right. Yeah. No, I understand but, that. But feel free to be that person. You know what I mean? Be, <laughs> feel free. And I'm. It's it's not my place to tell you you're wrong. That's right. why I would always tell them like. And I've had this literally hundreds of times. I've had this argument with people in the last 25 years. Like, you can have your opinion. That's fine. I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. I'm not going to call you an idiot because you don't like my band. Or I'm not going to call you a name because you disagree with me. Like, that's not who I am. Like, you, you feel free, you know, to do what you want to do. Like, I, that's like a West Texas thing for me. Like, do what you want to do. So as long as you're not hurting anybody, like, you're all good. What about, and, and that makes total sense, it did the context to why you're calling something. What, how did it affect the band? itself maybe not in interviews but with each other about those moments you know starting within casino out where it was like these things started to happen and and then with with uh, the grand royal record like were there discussions between everybody of like what's we're getting hit with all this like was it yelling at the publicist or trying to figure out different things to do it just seems like everyone was running from the, from any word at that moment, regardless of the band. I mean, I just don't think, at least for me, I don't think I could understand what was happening. Right. I just don't think I could grasp all the, all the gears that were turning simultaneously, starting with and casino out. Like I, I, and I'm not playing dumb. I just don't think I was 
interested in part of it. And then part of it, I was kind of alienated, but also taking advantage of it, which is kind of shitty. But, you know, you're like, I don't really want to do that thing. But at the same time, I, I really want to play this show, which is a result of that thing. So I'm going to just fucking do it because right. I really want to I really want to play whatever. And I, I think that, I mean, we were we were real young. You know, I was 23 when we made Relationship with Command. That's fucking young. I right. didn't understand how this stuff worked. I mean, I still lived at my parents' house at that point. Like, we, I moved out for like a year at a shitty apartment and then moved back to my parents because I didn't even know how to be a grown-up, you know? So I don't think I, I, don't think I knew, um, you know, and I, I think anything that I could say about that time period would be a reflection of living through it this long, mm-hmm. but it, and which is fine. But I think in it, honestly, I don't know the answer to those questions. Like, I don't know what, I don't remember what it was like in the moment. I have journals from that time period and there's some pretty dark stuff on, from my end. So uh, sometimes I think you go back to those times and you're like, I mean, we were selling more than 10,000 records a week at one point like who does that that seems so crazy to me and it seems like that's so ideal now like how big things were and how much attention we got and how our song was everywhere and you sort of candy coat that memory um and it becomes a bit of a crutch i think and then if you go back and really read what you were feeling as a 23 year old sort of young man living through it like i was not in a good place and there's nobody around you that says um hey, you don't seem like you're in a good place. <laughs> like, nobody does that. Everybody just goes, like, fucking cash in while you can. Like, take every... like Right, go, 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 you, go, and, go. Yeah, and it makes sense because you're working with people whose job it is to do this, and when they have something working, they're gonna milk it. That's what they do. And I didn't understand that. I couldn't understand, like, why are you... Why do you keep throwing me into the wall? And they're like, well, because every time I do it, you sell records. Like, of course we're gonna keep throwing you into the wall. Like, I didn't understand and that's naive on my part, but, you know, we never really sat around and talked about it and we imploded before it, you know, we only lasted like six months after the record came out, something like that. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. And then you can imagine all the people sitting at their offices in LA that were like, oh my God, like, why do you know how hard it is to get to this point? Right. And we're like, nah, we're good. <laughs> you know, it's just, it wasn't. I was not upset, I will tell you that, at the time. I was not upset that we stopped. Right. Well, I mean, just saying, you said, like, looking back and being like, you know, there aren't people that are going to say, right, they're not going to say, are are you okay? They're going to say, ready for the next interview. (laughs) Yeah. And then they'll say, you know, and it's funny, because I was watching the Billie Eilish documentary that Mm -hmm. came out a couple of months ago, and they're sitting, and she's telling them point blank, like, I am sick of, I am tired of blah, blah, blah. And they're just giving her more and more excuses on why she has to, and I just kept thinking, I was, I mean, obviously Christine and I have lived through all of this shit for 25 years, but we're, I'm just watching her and just being like, God, just one person on your side would be nice in that moment. That's right. just like, you know what? You know what, man? Fuck this. Fuck this. Like, you don't have to meet everybody after the show. So there's this like, there's this word, I hate the word half or like the words half to. Mm-hmm. because it drives me crazy and it's so you know if you don't play the show you have to play the show because if you don't you're never going to be added to this radio station in Atlanta this is always an example I use because it was a huge fight in my life and I was like have to I have to play this like why do I have to play this like I get there's consequences if you don't play it but I don't have to do anything I mean this is the whole point of playing guitar in a band is that I don't have to do what you're telling me I'm doing and you you build this career where you're surrounded by people who keep telling you you have to do stuff. Like, you don't have to meet people after the show. That's ridiculous. Like, why? if you're tired, go to bed. Right. You know what I mean? In, instead of staying up super late and stressing yourself out, and nobody else has to carry that except for you. And then there's, I know that there's like a, a an algorithm going through these people's heads, which is like, I can push this far they're not going to fire me because I'm almost irreplaceable, right? At that point, it's mm-hmm. like, how do you fire the biggest publicist in the world? You don't. Like, you just, that's not going to happen. You're going to get talked out of it or whatever it is. Like, You had nasty little man, didn't you? 
<laughs> oh, I did. Yeah, and I I love Steve, but I'm I'm yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, no, I know. I'm talking about Billy Eilish, not Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. No, I think he's he's one of the good ones yes. in my book. Yes. That's that's a guy that will listen to you when you say it's like you go backstage and a member of the band is is literally crying because they're so tired and stressed out and sick and just fucked up and just listen to them, you know? Like I remember going on tour, like Sparta went on tour with Thursday before the first record, before the first Sparta record came out. And it was supposed to be like a co-headline thing. And it's, the first show was in Fort Collins, I think. And we were like, yeah, we're not, this isn't co-headline. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. You guys are huge. So we would, we would just play before them every day and watch them and watch the crowd and I spent so much time talking with them on that tour because we had just lived through this two years ago. Mm-hmm. And we spent so much time talking about, like, it's, and this is going to sound super emo, right? It's like, we spent so much time talking about, like, it's okay to say no. It's okay to, to not want to do this. It's like, this stuff is going to keep happening. Like, the momentum is going to keep building it. And you can put the brakes on when you want to. Like, you're ultimately in charge. And I think ever since that tour, I've always tried to be like the older guy in the scene that's telling the younger kids in the scene like the truth about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just important. Did you have you listened to the Patrick Carney interview with Joe Rogan? No, I it's haven't. Like bl- so it's a Blackies, but it's just Patrick talking the whole time to Joe Rogan. That dude tells the truth in that interview about the industry and like what it does to you and what people do to you. And it was, I actually sent him a note. I didn't really know him, but I sent him a note after I heard that. I've listened to like three Joe Rogans, and that was one of them. And I sent him a note afterwards and just said, yo, thanks. Like, thank you for being fucking honest. And we actually ended up being friends oh, that's right. <laughs> because of that. But, um, but, but that's true that you say about those decisions. Um, I worked at indie labels, Equal Vision, Vagrant, a bunch of those places, and they have a different way of doing things, and there are some big decisions that were made. But when I started working at Majors and starting to see, like, there's two slots, we're going to give it to this one band, and it yep. is. You got, Hey, guess what? You got to fly to Grand Rapids tonight because yep. it's this thing, and then it, that guy also is in charge of these 10 stations. The publicist, yeah. is. it's all this, like, and they weave you this tale and they basically kind of like, and it's also saving their ass because they're oh, like, well, I've I got to hook up him for music cares because yep. I got him Coldplay last year. It's all this yep. like, and you're stuck in this soup. And I just, me is like the kid being like, I'm never going to work at a major. And then I did. And then how, not that it almost killed me, but it, it almost killed me. And I was like, yep. this is not worth it. And I remember I actually mentor college kids for my school and I, they're always like, Oh, you know, I want to work at Sony and and I'm like, that's great. But here are the things you need to know ahead of time to keep thinking. And I feel like for you guys on that end of hearing this diatribe from them and you're a band, you're young, you feel it in your heart of like, I, well, I want to, I want to do this. I want to be, I want to appease people. And I, I think it's a huge thing to, not necessarily walk away, but make those decisions because you're a hundred percent right that you're in charge and that it will come again. Yeah. It would have, um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't regret anything that's happened, but mm-hmm. people could have, people could have done a better job of, of, uh, taking care of us. And I've always held that irritation at the least. Like you can't expect, us at that level of what was happening as quickly it was happening and all the things that are being thrown at us and all of our relationships changing. I mean, some people are getting more famous. Some people aren't and probably want to be more. And, you know, some of us are in the middle just trying to keep themselves together. And then you, and then you're expected to think about five years from now, you know, like, well, if if you do this, you're going to be so good in five years. And I'm like, I'm not going to be alive in five years. I'll be honest with you. Like I'm, I'm going downhill really quickly. And, of course, I can say that now because I lived through it, and I can look back and I can see all the signs that were happening. But like, I was on a, I was on a bad path. For was sure. it? Was it like? Was it just being out all night? Influences like the, the, just the usual, not usual, well, but the things that 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 happen when you've got everybody saying yes. Um, 
like so for me i'm not like a drug guy at all um but for me it was more depression and alcohol Mm -hmm. uh which is a uh, the musician's combination of why we sort of play music in the first place is because we're dealing with trying to express ourselves to figure out things um and then you're just fueled by free booze and all the other stuff that comes with with being in a band like and i i certainly didn't understand depression or mental health nobody talked about it not not i mean it was way later in life before i ever got into therapy and started understanding like why i do some of the things i do and i'm a i'm a self-destructive person and it took a long time to realize what i was doing to myself and to the people around me right. I mean, the people that i love the most like it's even though we're not super tight um now like i love those guys and we went through crazy shit together and i probably um put them through the ringer on a bunch of stuff and put the people that i love around me through some pretty tough situations Mm -hmm. um it's selfish at the end of the day it's it's really selfish and i understand that better now than ever and that's why i'm i'm probably as happy as i've ever been and enjoy making music and tour when i want to and I'm totally comfortable with what I do and the level I do it at, and I'm not trying to be anything I'm not. That's sort of authenticity is really important to me. Kind of feels like the late '90s. It does. It does. <laughs> it, you know, you're 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 comfortable. You've got this sense of of um, unknown that I loved about the show or the record store you walked into or the person you met because of the T-shirt. Um, and being able to, um, I don't know, think on the fly too, like being able to take a moment and know that it's happening. And yeah. I feel like that that's great that you feel that today. Yeah. It's a, it's, um, I, I try to pick my words really carefully when I say things like this, but I just think I've been really fortunate, um, in my life to experience what I have and, um, to live through what I have when a lot of the people that I love around me did not. Right. And um, I mean, I've, again, like I'm a kid from El Paso and I've gotten to see the world and I've gotten to meet my heroes and I've gotten to play to a zillion people and it's nuts that I still get to do it. And I'm incredibly appreciative that I that I still get to do this and that I still want to do this um, and that I've found like a really good place. I love that. Well, I think it, it makes sense to talk about like, uh, I, as I'm a guitar player, I love writing, um, your guitar lines. I love, um, I'd love to talk about Sparta and, um, some of those songs, um, and that, that feeling. Cause again, um, for me as a guitar player, I just, I loved what you brought to at the drive-in and then this sort of felt like it was this opening up of your, things is there things that you remember from that first record writing wise that you enjoyed the first part of record is a lot of um sort of like air which is um a song off wiretap scars a fan pointed out to me the other day that if there's a there's an at the drive-in live video where i'm playing that riff in between songs so i'd obviously had some of this stuff just like mulling about in my head um and then when we decided to do Sparta. I did a, I went and played with some other people right before we started Sparta and kind of worked out some of that stuff. And But we wrote Wiretap in a really short amount of time and then spent an incredibly long time making that record because I wouldn't let uh, Jerry Finn use auto-tune. That was like <laughs> the whole, that was like the whole pivot conversation that we had where because he used auto-tune for the bands that he did and I was like, this is my first record singing. There's no way I'm going to use fucking auto-tune and he's like okay but it still has to be up to my standards so i sang for like two months on that record just spent so much money recording vocals um but at the same time learning how to do it and learning how to play and sing and be a front man was that's all wiretap was for me like we went out with weezer early on and that to me was sort of the like whatever hang-ups i had about this stuff I let them all go at that point. Like we got a tour bus, you know, mm-hmm. like went on tour with Weezer, um, got a huge backdrop, like had tons of crew guys. Like I just didn't give a fuck anymore. And, and I lived it up hard, like harder than I should have. But that was, I went from, 
I, I guess it was one of those things where it was like, if, if we're going to do this at this level, then I'm just going to, I'm going to ride it out. And I did all the way up until sort of making porcelain when it's sort of, I couldn't sustain that version of me anymore. And it's, it started kind of falling apart at that point. I mean, it's also interesting to that time period of the scene and what things were around and, you know, sort of resetting a little bit was almost, I think, smart. It was the only way at that point to to move on, and it's like you know every single interview I did. That's all we talked about was like what happened, what happened, right. what and and you some guys got really aggressive about it. Some guys talked shit about the other guys. Um, I just sort of fell deeper and deeper into like what does it matter? Like what it, I don't care. I don't right. care about and it and it leaves. I think it left people with this idea that I didn't care about the band or I didn't care about those times and. Um, that's not the case at all. I just couldn't, you're not going to sum it up in a, in a fucking spin article. You know, you're not going to ask me one question. I'm going to give you the answer and then you're going to get a Pulitzer. Like, it's just, it's not, that, that's, it's not going to happen. And I, it's funny. Cause even to this day at the end of an interview, people go, I got to ask. And it's always like, whatever the latest drama is with that part of my life. And I always say, you don't have to, I mean, you can, but you don't have to. And, I'm going to answer this the same way I always do, which is however I feel that moment, right. being honest about it. Right. It's not contrived. No, no. And I have no, I have no public ill will towards anybody. Like, I have no reason to diss anybody else's band or what they're doing. Like, there's plenty of that shit in the world. I don't need to contribute to it. Right. I want to talk about Daggers. Um, yeah. Because... It's funny. Uh, I've listened to a lot of records and I, and I throw it on while I'm working. And my test is, does my ear go, I got to stop working and listen. And it happened a bunch on this record. Um, and <laughs> it's like I'm the best compliment in the world. Thank you. <laughs> and the one I want to talk about, I, there's a few songs I want to talk about. Talk about safe pair of hands, because this might be my favorite song. And <laughs> I, I think it's got this slow, heavy, like latent riff, but I just, I hear Jim Ward in it. Yeah. And I know I know it's your record and it has your name on it, but I hear it in it. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because my the guy that I work with at Fender, I sent him the record and he's like, man, I can hear. And he listed off kind of like the references that I'm sure you can hear on there as well. And he goes, also, I hear you. <laughs> and I was like, really? That's such a, it's such a nice compliment when you when you have a style that somebody can appreciate and reflect back on. And I guess it's I mean, I've made enough records that that's possible, but. I'm still complimented by that. I still find that interesting. And that my favorite part about that song is I was I was going to my little vocal setup to sing and I was making tea and I burned my arm on the kettle. Like I reached over the kettle as it was boiling and I and I like fucking burned my arm. Um and it was it was this weird triggering thing and that's the whole song is based around that song but that lyric. Wow. I burned my arm on kettle steam. Um I think I can't believe it remembers me. It's sort of, it was the, that moment triggered something for me and it's deeply personal. Um, it's, it's a deeply personal song and I don't always know who I'm singing to. I think a lot of times I sing to myself um, with advice or reassuring myself. It's just my way of writing. Um, but I do believe in karma and I do believe that it comes out in your music. And that's kind of what that song is referring to. Like, I want to be a good person and I want to make good records. And I think that they're tied together. Those two things are tied together. I don't think they're separate at all. Maybe for some people they are, but not for me. Like, I like that. One thing, too, um, with the, the song Foreign Currency, I think there's something about being simple and... And having a simple riff, but have it be memorable, like kind of like a Tom Petty thing where like you like yeah. literally that CDG, but why is that literally, I can't stop listening to it. How did that song come together? I don't know if I remember exactly how every, all this stuff happened with, um, with COVID writing with, yeah, well, I mean, I wrote the whole record like in three, three weeks, basically I would write a riff and then send it to wow. Tucker the next morning. So I'd kind of write a riff at night, send it to him the next day. And then he would give me drum demos in mm -hmm. the afternoon <laughs> we didn't have much to do basically so we had a lot of time um 
but I don't know where the riff came from. It's all it's a, a weird thing when you write without other guitar players or without band members because all of a sudden I'm playing guitar to myself and then taking things out and adding things. Mm-hmm. But I do it really quickly. I do it all within a few hours. I don't really go back to it that much. Um, and then it's kind of there. I sort of always feel like if something is is good in that first few hours, then it's good. And if it's not, just put it on the shelf and come back to it a few years later, sometimes 10 years later. I love that. What are you most looking forward to with this record? Um, so part of it is just going on, on tour and playing to... I really want to do support stuff. So I'm just kind of hitting up all my friends saying like, go play a couple of shows here and there because I want to show people what I'm doing now without the pretense of a band name. Mm-hmm. And I also get to sort of reinvent Sparta songs as a three-piece. So I'm going to tour it as a three-piece and I get to reinvent a bunch of stuff that I've been playing for 15 or 20 years. And the idea of doing that is pretty exciting to me. Just to, because if I do it when I'm playing under the name Sparta, people get upset, <laughs> rightfully, you know? Um, because I, I feel like you get a little tricked into going to a show and then they've changed everything on you. But this way I get to sort of reinvent a bunch of stuff, which is exciting. What do you still love about all of this with music and everything. creativity? That's a, it's an easy answer for me. Everything, every single part of it, like um, loading in, sound check, like making records, doing interviews, sort of the idea that you're creating something out of nothing. Um, like I pick up a guitar if not every day every other day and just see what happens sometimes nothing happens sometimes something happens that I, I would never have imagined and so I think that's that's it that's everything Karma, come.